Hi, I'm Rabbi Ami Hirsch of the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue in New York, and you're listening to In These Times. Today I'm hosting Yossi Klein Halevi, a brilliant thinker and author and one of the Jewish world's most astute observers. All of us in the professional world, the rabbis who want to know, we consult Yossi whenever we seek to know more about what Israelis are thinking. What are their hopes, fears, and motivations? He is the go-to guy. Yossi is a specialist in Israel's relationship with world Jewry, in particular the American Jewish community. He is a product of both communities and is entirely at home in both. A most eloquent advocate for coexistence between Israel and the Palestinians, Yossi didn't start out in that place. His first book, Memoirs of a Jewish Extremist, tells the story of his teenage years as one of Mayor Kahana's militant followers and how he became disillusioned with radicalism. Yossi Klein-Alevi is a senior fellow at the Jerusalem-based Shalom Hartman Institute and the co-director, along with Imam Abdullah Antepli of Duke University's Muslim Leadership Initiative. In his most recent book, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor, Yossi reaches across the divide and seeks to explain the narrative of the Jewish people in the land of Israel so that Palestinians will understand Jews better and we will understand Palestinians better. Yossi, welcome to In These Times. Well, it's so wonderful to be with you, Ami, and I, I have to say you really are, to my mind, one of the vital voices in this generation, so thank you. It's my pleasure. I uh, feel the same about you, which is one key reason why I uh, wanted to have you on the podcast. Beyond the fact that all around you're a really nice person and a brilliant person <laughs> and just a pleasure to, to listen to you talk about anything, you began as what I think you termed as an extremist. The title of your first book was Memoirs of a Jewish Extremist. I'm always fascinated by this phenomenon of extremism. You were a Mayor Kahana supporter, and obviously you transitioned into what you are now, which is... If I can characterize your approach, you're an advocate of peace. Not not a Mayor Kahana supporter. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a fascinating phenomenon for me on all levels, including a religious level. I've spent a lot of time thinking about how to confront extremism. So tell us a little bit about your background, and in particular, what caused the big transition into what you eventually became? Well, we're going back now to the late 1960s, early 70s, in my late teens, early 20s. I'm almost 70 now, so uh, this is really distant history for me. And the truth is, I would have said to you that it's largely irrelevant history now, not only for me, but for the Jewish people, except that's not true, because we're at a moment now in Israel where Kahanism is on the rise. It is being legitimized. I almost said re-legitimized, but the truth is it was never legitimized in Israeli politics until Netanyahu. Mm. How do you define Kahanism, by the way, Yossi? What do you mean when you say Kahanism? It is um, looking at the two core identities of Israel as a Jewish state and a democratic state, which need to be in constant creative tension between them and severing them and discarding the democratic ethos and leaving Israel only as a Jewish state. And of course, not just as a Jewish state, but the Kahanist conception of a Jewish state, which is apocalyptic, which is radically anti-other, the entire non-Jewish world. 
and placing revenge against the non-Jews for all the humiliations that we endured as the core of Jewish theology. And Kahana, in that sense, was really an innovative theologian. He refashioned Judaism into the religion of revenge. And if you do selective quoting in our text, you can get to any theological Hmm. conclusion. And he created the theology of revenge. Now, when I was attracted to Kahana in the late 60s, it was a bit of a different Kahanism. It was the Jewish Defense League, which was very much American-centered. And it had two purposes, to defend vulnerable Jews left behind in what used to be called changing neighborhoods, euphemistically called changing neighborhoods. And the second was to violently place the struggle for Soviet Jewry at the center of media attention. And that's personally what attracted me. As a kid, really, as 12, 13, I joined the student struggle for Soviet Jewry in the mid-1960s, just when the Soviet Jewry movement was beginning. And then when Kahana came along and said, look, it's the 60s. (laughs) If we're going to get media attention, then we have to be like the Black Panthers, Students for a Democratic Society, SDS. It appealed to my post-Holocaust psyche. I grew up in a survivor family. So there was a convergence of influences. The late 60s, you know, it was right after the Six-Day War. American Jews, Jews all around the world were revved up with pride. We were trying to process what our parents had gone through and trying to own that experience into our young adulthood. So it was really a convergence of factors that created the JDL moment, which was unique in American Jewish history. We never saw anything like it before or after. A militant group of American Jews defying, first of all, the Jewish establishment and the whole American Jewish ethos of blending in. We wanted to stand out and poke a finger in everybody's eye. That's what appealed to me. How long did you spend there, uh, not only in within the JDL, but also within that mindset? Well, my first arrest was when I was 17. That was a sit-down in Washington. We had a 1,000 people arrested at a mass JDL demonstration. And my kind of my farewell was in 1973 when eight of us went to the Soviet Union and had a sit-in in the immigration office in Moscow. And between that, between... I'd say those few years were really the peak of my involvement. My break with Kahana was gradual. There isn't one single event that I can point to, but certainly the direction that he took when he moved to Israel in the early 70s, when he basically gave up the Soviet Jewry movement and became the head of Israel's farthest right, and began advocating a mass expulsion of Palestinians, blowing up the Dome of the Rock. Even in my mindset then, I felt, now these are several steps too far for me. And the truth is, most of his American followers, most of my friends, left him around that time. So the uh, transition was gradual. You yourself moved to Israel eventually. And from a philosophy that otherwise people, in particular the Palestinians, you became a friend of the Palestinians. You wrote a book about letters to my Palestinian neighbors. 
It really was almost the antithesis of what originally was the Kahana perspective. What kind of reactions did you get to the book, in particular from your Palestinian neighbors? The book was released in uh, 2018 simultaneously in English and Arabic, and it was placed online in Arabic for free downloading. I hired a team of young Palestinians and other Arabic speakers to promote the Arabic version in Arabic social media. And it went all over the Middle East and thousands of people downloaded. And I received hundreds of letters. Many of the letters from Palestinians were, as I expected, uh, hostile, angry. Others were curious, and some were deeply engaged with the issues that I raised and were looking for a conversation. The paperback edition that came out a year later includes a 50-page epilogue of responses from Palestinians. And the difficult decision that I had there, Ami, is I knew I wanted to publish those responses. That was very important for me. But do I give them the last word in my book? Now, I wrote this book to explain and defend my people's narrative. And Palestinians were responding with their people's counter-narrative, and in many of the cases, attacking the credibility of my narrative. And I worried, if I give them the last word, I'm leaving the reader with the Palestinian version of our story. And damn it, it's my book. <laughs> you know, I don't want to give them the last word. But in the end, I decided to do that, partly to honor the courage and goodwill that Palestinians who responded showed, even when they deeply disagreed with me. But I also wanted to model a different kind of conversation. The way that politics is argued these days, you're not supposed to show any generosity to your opponent. You're supposed to defeat your opponent, discredit, demean your opponent. And here we are, Palestinians and Israelis, with opposing narratives in an existential conflict. For us, this isn't politics. This is life and death. And I felt that if we could model a respectful disagreement over irreconcilable narratives, but still that model itself might be useful. And so I decided to give the Palestinian counter-narrative the last word. It was also, truthfully, a way of trying to communicate self-confidence in the Zionist narrative. We don't have to be afraid of the Palestinian narrative. Some of it is true. Some of it, from my point of view, is not. Some of it is problematic. But let's engage. This is my story. Let's hear your story. And let's put it out there. And let's try to speak to each other in a way that I don't think we really have tried. We've tried to make peace, and we've done that by trying to sidestep our opposing narratives. And what I try to do in this book is give the two narratives their space and their respect, because both sides are peoples of memory. And for both sides, our story is really our self-definition. And so the book is an experiment, and uh, it might have been Martin Buber who said of the kibbutz movement, it's an experiment that didn't fail. I hope he would say the same today. I feel that this was a very modest experiment that didn't fail. Where do you think we stand 
on the Palestinian issue? Are we any closer to reaching some kind of accommodation? My short answer is no. And I would say, Ami, that even though I thoroughly repudiated Kahana and his love of violence, his hatred for the other, my move was not to go from Kahana to the left. My move was a little more complicated. I went from the far right to the center. And my conclusion was that the problem is not only right-wing extremism, it's extremism generally. And left-wing and right-wing extremism thrive off of each other. They need each other to strengthen their arguments. Do you see how awful those people are? Do you see what they're saying? You need to listen to me because I'm the bulwark. I'm the balance against those lunatics. That characterizes so much of political conversation today, both in Israel and, and in the U.S. For me, it's really the center that needs to be strengthened. And my relationship to the Palestinians is not coming from a left-wing place. I would characterize a left-wing Israeli or Jewish position as uh, placing all or most of the blame for the absence of peace on Israel. That is not at all my position. I don't absolve the Palestinian leadership of their substantial share of the responsibility. We have to own our responsibility in expanding settlements on other violations, human rights violations. But the Palestinian leadership amply helped create this mess. And that's very much a centrist position. I think we should take responsibility where it belongs with us, but also not be squeamish about pointing to the failures of the other side. And the other piece of this is that as a centrist, I believe deeply in the need for a two-state solution, first of all, for Israel's interests. Israel has to remain a Jewish and democratic state. And if we move toward a binational state, one of those two fundamental elements of our identity is going to be fatally compromised. So I'm a centrist because it is in our interest to go for a two-state solution. But as a centrist, I have the same wariness toward the Palestinian national movement as the Israeli right, as most Israeli Jews. Stop almost any Israeli on the street and say, do you, what do you think will happen if we withdraw tomorrow from the West Bank? The answer will be there'll be rockets on Tel Aviv. We'll have Hamas, we'll have Gaza in the West Bank. And I certainly feel that. So this notion that the left still seems to believe that all we need to do is make the requisite concessions and we'll have peace. Most Israelis don't believe that. And so a centrist is someone who is open and wary at the same time. You've convinced me about the intransigence of at least elements, some parts of the Palestinian community. You've convinced me about some intransigence in some parts of the Israeli Jewish community. Is the two-state solution the only viable long-term resolution of this problem? And if not, is there another solution? And if the status quo in the long run is not viable, what's your solution to the dilemma? Look, I don't like the two-state solution. I don't trust it. I fear it. I fear the consequences for Israeli security of a Palestinian state 
literally outside the window where I'm speaking. I live on the edge of Jerusalem, the very last row of houses. The West Bank, I'm looking at it from my porch right now. Any other alternative seems to me much worse. And I fear a Palestinian state, but I fear the absence of a Palestinian state a little bit more. And so for me, what it comes down to is not are we going to have peace or annexation. It's whether we're going to have annexation with a binational state in the end of Israel as a Jewish and democratic state, or take an enormous security risk and sever ourselves from the Palestinian population that we're ruling over. Our choice is between one form of vulnerability and another. And given those unpalatable choices, I will go reluctantly, fearfully, but nevertheless, I feel there's no choice but to go for externalizing the threat and dealing with the Palestinian state. Mm. You mentioned that you recently had an opportunity to talk to the URJ board, the Union for Reform Judaism, our national movement's board of trustees in Israel. You remember uh, during the uh, May conflict with Hamas, uh, approximately 100 rabbinical students, a third of whom came from our seminary, the Hebrew College, wrote this letter and circulated it throughout the Jewish community. Eventually, it became a major story in the New York Times. What do you think those students missed and in terms of minimizing Israel's security challenges? And what do you think it portends for the future of liberal rabbis and Israel-Diaspora relations? I really appreciated your response at the time. You put your finger on the problematic nature of the rabbinical students' response as a betrayal of shared citizenship in the Jewish people. And there was such an absence of empathy for what Israelis were experiencing at that moment that it really could have been something issued by the UN or some neutral body. The UN isn't neutral, but there was this sense of walking away from the responsibilities of Jewish peoplehood, which is not, the responsibilities do not involve agreeing with Israel's policies even during the war. But the question is, how do you do it? And to release a statement that was so devoid of basic Jewish solidarity, and it was so careful about constantly being emotionally equivalent, the emotional symmetry was for me very painful because it rang false to me. The other piece of it was, of course, the adoption of the apartheid libel. And the apartheid libel for me really is a watershed. If you look at the amnesty report, you'll see that they are applying apartheid retroactively. They don't only mean anymore post-1967, the territories. They're applying apartheid to Israel's founding, that Zionism is an apartheid ideology. And my response to that is, first of all, I live in a building in French Hill, which is just about 50% Israeli and Jewish-Israeli families. We all look at what Amnesty calls the apartheid wall outside our porch from the same direction. We're all looking at this wall from west to east, which is to say that that wall does not divide races 
or ethnicities or religions even. It divides people who are Israeli citizens and who are not. That's not apartheid. Call it occupation. Call it whatever you want. Don't use that loaded term which delegitimizes Israel's existence. The other piece of that, which the rabbis seem to have bought into, and I, the rabbinical students, and which I, I hear often, increasingly often, from progressive American Jews, is that, well, okay, the apartheid label might not apply literally to all of Israel, to pre-67 Israel, but it certainly applies to the West Bank, where Israel maintains two systems of law. Now, the moment that we would stop applying two systems of law, military and Israeli civilian law, which applies to the settlers, and extend Israeli law to all of the West Bank, that's the moment we're annexing the territories and a two-state solution is over. The whole reason for not applying Israeli law in the West Bank is because we're not annexing. We're supposedly holding open our options for a two-state solution. Now, we are getting closer to that point of no return where we're going to have to decide, are we ever really going to withdraw? And it's a fair question to Israel at this point. I don't believe we have crossed the line of no return, but each year brings us a bit closer. Do, do you think that Israel's relationship with world Jewry is important? Is it uh, something that goes to the heart of the Zionist endeavor or the Jewish people? And what state of affairs do you think that relationship is in at this point in time? Look, I don't think that there is a state of Israel without a relationship with world Jewry. And Zionism took on what turns out to be two uneasy commitments. The first was to salvage and recreate the Jewish people, and it did that through what we call the ingathering of the Jews to Israel from a hundred countries and refashioning us into a functioning people here where we are organically, intimately reconnected and reconnected with world Jewry. And at the same time, Israel created a new people called the Israelis. That was a Zionist creation. Now, not all Jews are citizens of Israel, and not all citizens of Israel are Jews. And that's the very difficult dual identity that Israel needs to navigate. We are the state of the whole Jewish people, including Jews who are not citizens of Israel. And we are the state of all of our citizens, including non-Jews. To hold those two identities is, for me, the definition of modern Israel. To betray either of those identities, either our Jewishness or our democratic commitments is to sever ourselves from one of our two essential roots. You know, Ami, it's interesting. When we speak about Israel's relationship with the diaspora, with world Jewry, we're really looking at a crisis in the American Jewish Israeli relationship, specifically the liberal American Jewish Israeli relationship, which is 70%, 80% of American Jewry. That relationship is in deep trouble. And it's in deep trouble, I think, for the following reason. On the Israeli side, more and more young Israelis are questioning Israel's democratic identity and moving closer to the far right. And Kahanism is becoming more acceptable among 
growing numbers of young Israelis. And among young, liberal, progressive American Jews, the notion of Israel as a Jewish state is becoming increasingly problematic. We're seeing the rupturing of the two flags on the bima of most American synagogues, the Israeli flag, the American flag, and what that symbolized to the post-Holocaust generation, that these are our two commitments, the democratic values represented by America and Israel as a Jewish state. If we lose that shared language between us, if Israelis stop being committed to democratic values, and American Jews stop upholding and defending the legitimacy of Israel as a Jewish state, we will lose our most minimal ability to maintain a shared language. And then the relationship is beyond troubled. The relationship really is in major crisis. I resonate to something you said, Yossi, about the real crisis with world Jewry is with American Jewry and within that, uh, liberal American Jewry, which of course defines most most of American Jews. I take seriously, I'm a product of uh, the reform movement. I'm a liberal. I've been a liberal for decades. Between my father and me, we've served the reform movement for essentially a century, a hundred years. I love this movement. And I don't minimize the critique of Israel. And I even take seriously reform rabbis, students, younger people who tell me, you know, Israel doesn't have that much meaning in my life or to my rabbinate. And then I, I can engage in a discussion with them. But I've always felt in the contemporary world that anti-Zionism is a product of the luxury of not feeling threatened. There are no Ukrainian anti-Zionists. There are no Russian anti-Zionists now. Right. That said, here's my question for you. You have expertise on what's going on on American campuses and the intellectual assault and the political assault, not only on Israeli policies, but fundamentally on the very existence of Israel, what Zionism means. And it's sweeping up a lot of our people, a lot of American uh, young Jews. What do you make of that? Do you consider that to be a serious threat or do we make more of it than really it deserves? Well, you know, I'm listening to you before made me realize that Jewish anti-Zionism is actually a victory for Zionism because Zionism has helped make the Jewish people feel so safe that it's now considered to be reasonable to question the need for Jewish power. Not just the uses of Jewish power, but the very legitimacy of the Jewish reclamation of power. I think back to my father in 1945 and what would he have made of this moment, looking at young Jews questioning the need for a Jewish state? I think he would have said, there they go again, the Jews losing their minds, <laughs> losing their most minimal ability to defend themselves, which of course was his critique and the critique of many survivors after the war. It was not a charitable critique of the Jewish people. My father was always worried about a self-destructive gene in the Jewish people. He did not romanticize pre-Holocaust European Jewry. He said, look at what made us vulnerable. Look at what made us such an easy mark. I grew up very much in that mindset. And I see the return of Jewish anti-Zionism as to some extent a danger to Israel, but not as great a danger to Israel as it is in the long term to the vitality of American Jewry. Because what anti-Zionism is doing 
and I've seen this on campus, is undermining the self-confidence of young American Jews in progressive spaces. Suddenly, young American Jews feel that they're on probation, on moral probation. Is this okay to say? Can I be this kind of Jew? And the great achievement of American Jewry was overcoming American Jewish insecurity. Now, I don't know if you remember this, Ami. I don't know how old you are. But I remember experiencing what turned out to be the tail end of the insecure American Jewish community that was always looking over its shoulders. The adults, when they would say the word Jew in public, would lower their voices. And I noticed a transformation gradually, how American Jews became more and more secure in both their Americanness and their Jewishness. The tragedy or the threat of progressive anti-Zionism is restoring the conditionality of Jewish acceptance in American public spaces. Another way of putting it is the return of the American Jewish whisper. And I literally hear it on campuses now. I was walking on a quad with some Jewish students and someone mentioned Israel and she lowered her voice. And I was sitting with a professor who lowered his voice when he talked about Zionism. We were sitting in a bar and that's what worries me about the impact of anti-Zionism, not so much on, on Israel, but much more deeply on American Jewish psychological well-being. I connected with that very much, Yossi, and it motivates a lot of what I do inside the movement. It's not so much to persuade those who seem to me to be unpersuadable, but the majority of uh, American Jews, liberal American Jews, are persuadable on Israel. And it seems to me that it is so important for people like us, and I believe that we're in, still in the majority in the reform movement, an important function of speaking out, not ceding the entire space to those who are so critical of Israel, is to stiffen the backbone of those who are persuadable, and they're the majority. It is so important. I completely resonate with what you said. It's my experience as well that a majority, I would even say a strong majority of American Jewish liberals remain intuitively connected to Israel. But the challenge is to make that intuition explicit and to make it intellectually and spiritually coherent. That's hard work. That's the work we need to do. Yossi, this has been a great privilege for me and uh, for our listeners. Uh, it's an honor to be able to host you for uh, this podcast, and uh, I wish you well. I know I'll see you often in the weeks and months and years to come. Keep up the very good work, and thank you for uh, appearing on our show. Thank you, and, and the, the pleasure and the honor is mutual. Thank you. Yossi Klein Alevi is one of the most important thinkers in the Jewish world today. It is because he was once an extremist, as he himself attests and describes, and it is because he rejected extremism, not in one fell swoop, but gradually, which is how any thinking person becomes convinced and changes their mind. It is because of the distance traveled by Yossi Klein Alevi that he serves as an important teacher to all of us, no matter our political views. I want to highlight one key thought he emphasized. In an increasingly polarized world, where we are forced to choose sides and tribes, 
radicalism intensifies on both sides of the spectrum. Yossi mentioned that extremisms need each other to strengthen themselves. They appeal to their bases with the message, I stand in the breach against those lunatics on the other side. Judaism always rejected the impulse to see the world in black and white, us and them, sane people and lunatics. It is true that there have been and are now plenty of Jewish radicals. You can find in Jewish tradition and in Jewish history examples of close-mindedness, intemperance, and zealotry. Because of this human propensity to otherwise others, Judaism emphatically rejected all-or-nothing, I-am-right-and-you-are-wrong philosophies. It seems to me that the reassertion of moderation is among the central challenges of our times. Among the core ideas of Judaism is that to be human is to be in covenant with other human beings. My life is wrapped up in her life. My destiny is wrapped in his. And therefore, the solutions to our innumerable human challenges do not really start with economic or political policy. Policies follow values. It is our worldview that comes first. Judaism urges us to overcome our tendency to ignore or exploit or dominate other human beings and to consider them our partners. We need to develop a much stronger sense of compassion and understanding with fellow human beings. We need to work not only on our intellect, but on our heart, our feelings, and our sense of commonality with others. And then, perhaps, we will be able to resolve what appears to us to be intractable problems, like the Israeli-Palestinian dispute that Yossi spoke with us about at length. One of my favorite biblical passages is from the Book of Kings. We read, And God endowed King Solomon with three gifts, intelligence, very much wisdom, and a broad heart, a heart as vast as the sands on the seashore. I always found it so profound that the biblical verse mentions intelligence first. God gave Solomon the gift of intelligence. Intelligence is good. But God gave Solomon even more wisdom and understanding because to be intelligent is never enough. Extremists are intelligent too. Terrorists are intelligent too. We need wisdom because even brilliant people often make unwise decisions. In your workplace, would you rather have a colleague who is an untrustworthy and unreliable genius or one of average intelligence who excels in loyalty, teamwork, and discipline? Would you rather be married to a misogynist genius like Picasso or a hardworking loyal spouse who paints in his spare time? Who would you want in the foxhole with you? The one who knows all of the theories of war or the one who is most resilient, the most imaginative, the most optimistic? But even wisdom is not enough. There are plenty of skillful and able politicians who sway the masses for ill rather than for good. There are plenty of brilliant scientists who design viruses intended to kill. There are plenty of gifted and emotionally intelligent lawyers who pervert justice. There are plenty of exceptional and courageous warriors who are terrorists. We can think ourselves into practically anything we can reason ourselves into the most unreasonable positions. Most of the evils of the world were not stumbled into. They were the product of thoughts reasoned out. And that is why God gave Solomon not only intelligence and not only wisdom, but also a broad heart, a good heart, an understanding heart. Solomon had this attribute in the most abundant quality of all, according to the Bible. His heart was as broad as the sands on the seashore. This was the truly distinctive characteristic of King Solomon, 
A broad heart is the quality that we have the least, and thus it was given to King Solomon the most. Like any skill, we need to cultivate and discipline broad-heartedness, compassion, kindness, embrace of others. It doesn't come naturally. We need to be taught how to do these things. Hence the importance of religion and the importance of teachers of ethics and morality. We do not teach broad-heartedness in school. We teach practical skills. We teach value, not values. In Jewish tradition, a good heart is the most important attribute. When King Solomon was asked by God what he wanted more than anything else, he responded that he wanted a listening heart, a heart with which he could understand not complicated scientific or philosophical ideas, but a heart by which he could understand a person's joys and sorrows, aspirations and disappointments, their pains and sufferings. We do not have enough people in the world who have a listening heart. If we did, extremism would diminish, and so many of the world's problems could be resolved, including those like the Israeli-Palestinian dispute that appear to us the most intractable problems of all. Until next time, this is In These Times. Thank you.